You are back with the conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. This is Catherine Cruz. Today happens to be Cyber Monday, and to acknowledge the many small businesses that have had to move online to survive the pandemic, we bring you a story behind the success of Pop-Up Makeke. It's a show that's a little bit QVC, a little bit Amazon, and all about helping small businesses across the island. We talked to Kohil Lewis, Executive Director of the Council for Native Hawaiian Advancement. The mission of the organization is the mission of the organization is to help advance Hawaii economic, politically, socially, culturally, with a focus on Native Hawaiians, of course. Right. So that's the mission of the organization, and it's a pretty broad mission. So it allows us to venture into different areas. The pandemic has taken a toll on everyone. I mean, they haven't left anyone behind, and we were very much in the same boat as the rest of Hawaii and the nation in the world, for that matter, in that a lot of the programs that we offer, trade schools, you know, our home counseling programs, our business schools, everything stopped. And we were forced into a place of having to pivot or, you know, we'd have to close down some of our programs. So pivot we did. And that was the birth and the beginning of uh, the program that we've all come to know, the pop-up marketing. It really is remarkable because I think the story that I heard was that there were so many vendors that were put out of commission, let's say that would normally sell at Mary Monarch, you know, that kind of right. thing, and that mm-hmm. uh, Pop-Up Makeke really became a venue to connect everybody again. Yeah, so it started in my office late one night. You know, we were assessing what we were going to do going forward. Everybody was on edge. And it was that same night that they announced on the news that the Mary Monarch was canceled uh, for the year. And we were, you know, we knew that it wasn't just the Hula Festival that was getting canceled. It was also the hundreds and hundreds of small businesses that bend outside of the Hula Festival, the craft fairs. And then we started to think about the Made in Hawaii Festival and many of the other expos that we have all come to know and where we go to look for you know, our, our, our Hawaii-based products. And we thought, what is going to happen to all of them? And we started talking about what if we created a platform that allowed them to continue to sell their products to the customer, not only in Hawaii, but around the world online. And we were going to do something special in addition to creating an online marketplace and that was to feature these products on Facebook Live. So that is that was the initial concept. You know, it was it came from that anxiety that we all felt during the Merry Monarch when that got cancelled as well as all of the festivals and all the craft fairs. So it came from that and it's just ballooned into a full-blown operation now. I was thinking just the other day, oh my gosh, they probably are not going to have the Oha Marketplace where yeah. I like to do my last-minute Christmas shopping. Yeah. And, you know, wonderful gifts from all over the state. Yep, and, you know, that this is all culminated, right? So prior to working for, uh, as the CEO for the organization Council for Native Hawaiian Advancement, I used to work at Oha. And that craft fair that you're referring to was, uh, was uh, something I started there. And so I was very intimate with many of the vendors and, you know, understanding their various levels of capacity. Uh, so that that all culminated and helped towards the end, of, you know, towards what we have now, the pop-up Makeke. I happened to catch the show, uh, oh, I guess it was a couple of weeks ago, and uh, up popped, you know, Maui's mayor and Honolulu's mayor, you know, talking about, you mm-hmm. know, they were putting some of the CARES money toward this to provide yep. free shipping. Yeah. You know, the CARES Act, I, I, I wasn't sure the reaction of the counties when I went to them because it was a big idea. It was outside of the box. It was not something that would typically come forward. But my team and I put together a proposal. We went to Honolulu County, and then we went to Mayor uh, Victorino, and we, we threw out the idea. said, hey, we want to bring back the Papa Mosey because the initial one was only a couple of months. It was We thought the pandemic would go away like everybody else, so we only popped it up for a short while, 60 days, and then we all went back to normalcy, but not really. <laughs> and so we we put pitch to the counties this idea of, of bringing it back, but this time using CARES Act funds to help cover some of the expenses because it's very subsidized. It subsidizes everything that you see, the TV program, 
to the online marketplace, to the staff that's involved, to the shipping, is all being subsidized right now by the CARES Act. So these are this is one of the stories that you don't hear too often or on the news, but this is one way in which the CARES Act dollars are helping to keep our businesses alive right now. And the stores, the, the, the pop-up makeke, and by the way, makeke in Hawaiian stands for marketplace. So it's a pop-up marketplace. It is doing extremely well. I pulled some analytics this morning to share with the county, and we have sold 56,000 products in just a few months. And so it's, you know, it's, it really has turned into uh, this economic hub, if you will, and 40% of the Papa Makeke customers are coming from outside of Hawaii, which is even greater. That means money coming into our economy that wouldn't otherwise. Do you have an idea of how much product you've sold, the monetary value? So it's almost $1.4 million has been grossed, the store has grossed. And I want to emphasize that all of that goes back to the businesses that are part of the Papa Makeke. There is no commission, there's no consignment. They get 100%. We're just a facilitator facilitating the sale of their product. I just love that you've turned into this wish fulfillment center. You know, if if you could summarize what the Makeke, the Papa Makeke is, it's like a, it's a QVC-like and uh, Amazon-like type of operation in one, right? So you have every week or every Sunday on, on KHNL, we feature products that are in the Makeke, so you get to see it. Someone's using it, someone's demonstrating it, and then it's all available online on this big online search engine. We have over 16,000 unique products on that website. So anything from household goods to the latest fashion to accessories to food. You have Hawaii food. You have Moloka'i shoyu. People haven't even heard of them, but I gotta tell you, I tried it myself. It's pretty good. Something for everyone in this pop-up makeke, and it connects you to the island. Well, I understand too that you have featured products that help Iolani Palace. I think they have keychains, Iolani Palace keychains on there. Oh, yeah. So there's a couple of there's a couple of products that I think uh, are worth mentioning. One is of course Iolani Palace. They have a store, uh, and their store, of course, is closed because of the. Well, I don't know if it's closed now. They might have reopened, but I know that they're not at the same operating level that they were prior to this pandemic. And therefore, you know, everything's just plummeted. So we feature keychains to even Christmas ornaments that you'll only find at Yolani Palace's store. You have memorabilia. You have things that remind you of our queen. You have books. So Iolani Palace is, is represented in the Papa Makeke, and they're doing so well. And I'm happy I could, the Papa Makeke is able to support uh, Ms. Paula Kana in her new role as executive director. Another awesome thing that I wanted to mention, in the Papa Makeke, you will find a piece of the Hokulea sale. So when, the, when Hokulea returned to Hawaii, you know, the sale that was used was decommissioned, and they turned it into keychains, pencil box, uh, pencil purses and little clutches and so it's been sewn and so you literally can buy that on the makeke and have a piece of the hokulea sale uh, as part of your fashion it's pretty cool actually i think it was paula kana who told me about some of the the neat things that were being uh produced that you can have a piece of the hokulea with you i think it was last christmas i think where, where she shared with me guess what they're selling guess what the polynesian um, voyaging yep. society yep. is getting into so it, it, yep. it's really neat to that, that you're helping not just small businesses, but organizations that are near and dear to our heart. Yeah, and you know, I'll just add that this has helped out our businesses in so many ways. So not only is it helping to put food on the table for some of them because there's no opportunity to sell right now other than, you know, on, online, it's professionally developing them. It's putting them in places that would have taken them a long time to get to. So. You know, we just opened a retail store of Pop-Up Makeke at Pro Ridge Uptown. The partnership is Manaola Hawaii and Pop-Up Makeke. So we have a huge storefront, the old Ann Taylor space uh, in, in Uptown. So these small businesses now have a space within a space in the center of one of Hawaii's busiest shopping centers. And separate from that, you know, many of them weren't prepared for online marketing. So helping them to develop pictures and descriptions of their products in a way that can market them to a much broader audience 
this is all part of what Mustic is doing. It's those hidden gems that we won't see on the surface. But I think they're going to be better off after this all passes than they were before it started, which is a win in so many different ways. Well, let me tell you, it sounds like you're doing a lot for Native Hawaiian Advancement. Well, it's not, and the beautiful thing, it's not only Native Hawaiian. So we opened our doors to everyone. Why? Because I am a strong believer that if Hawaiians can lead the way and help uplift others, then that's the, that's the place to be. So you'll find Asian, you'll find, uh, you'll find all kinds of cultural merchandise in our pop-up masake. So you have point uh, kits, you know, you have people that do resin art. So while, yes, you know, there's a lot of native artists. There's also just Hawaii-based artists in the pop-up market as well. Leading the way. I really like that. I like that thought. You know, as we uh, get into the holidays here, uh, you want to share with us, um, what are you thankful for? I am thankful for this amazing opportunity to help uplift Hawaii businesses. I mean, they tell me thank you all the time. But really, the ability to provide them support is a very warm feeling it's a feeling that you know you you just can't purchase you can't buy that so i'm I'm just grateful for this opportunity that we have to uplift others that's the real spirit of thanksgiving and christmas and i'm glad we found this little pocket that we could fit in and help others that was Kuhil Lewis, Executive Director of the Council for Native Hawaiian Advancement, talking about the story behind Pop-Up Makeke, the marketplace for Hawaii goods. Move over Amazon. And as we mentioned earlier, this is Cyber Monday, and Pop-Up Makeke vendors are offering a Cyber Monday sale. So check it out. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Mercedes-Benz of Honolulu, featuring this season's winter lineup of new and pre-owned SUVs and cars at the showroom and online at mercedesbenzofhonolulu.com. When people hear the word hospice, they usually know what it means. But how about palliative care? How can those who are ill continue to treat their condition, but also get the extra support they may need? I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. Join me today on The Body Show. We'll talk about the concept of concurrent care. That's today at 6.30 on The Body Show. Support for HPR comes from Alexander and Baldwin, owners and managers of office, industrial, and retail properties across the state. A and B, building partnerships in Hawaii for 150 years with a commitment to provide for the needs of island communities. This is The Conversation on statewide, member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Up next, your backyard quiz. In today's Backyard Quiz, we're looking for the name of an ancient surf-riding princess of Maui whose abduction from her Valley Isle home has led some to compare her to the Hawaiian Helen of Troy. Back in the days when the Hawaiian Islands were ruled by their own separate rulers, there lived a chief on Oahu by the name of Lolale. The story goes that as Lolale remained unmarried and without children at the age of 35, the chief dispatched his cousin, uh, Kalamakua, to scour the islands in search of a suitable bride. Before he set out, uh, Kalamakua vowed that if the bride he brought back to Oahu did not please his royal cousin, that he would instead marry her himself. As he made his way to the shores of Maui, the royal attendant saw a group of women swimming in the breaks of, of Hana and paddled his canoe over to meet them. 
Picking out the fairest of the lot, uh, Kalamakua invited her to join him in his canoe. Before they were resolved to head back to Maui, uh, Kalamakua decided to display his skill at canoeing and rode a series of dangerous waves with the young woman in tow. They rode three mighty waves before heading back to Maui to present Lolali with his new bride-to-be. The two were married, but the young woman did not find marriage to the chief to her liking. After Chief Lolali allowed a divorce, the young woman did not return to Maui, but instead married the canoe-riding man who brought her to Oahu in the first place. Now for today's Backyard Quiz, can you tell us the name of this Hawaiian Helen of Troy? Call 941-3689 or 877-941-3689 if you know the answer. The first one to get it right gets a reusable tote bag that tells people you got it right. driverless cars. They will be in place sooner than you think here in Hawaii. The technology is already being installed in a section of one of the busiest stretches into town and across the state. We hear about the accelerated progress being made in a pilot project from State Highways Administrator Ed Sniffen. Did you know that 35 signals along Nimitz Highway are already hooked up? It's something called adaptive system technology. We started off in August of last year, went through a pilot program with UH and um, hired some, some contractors to start installing it. So we put in, in 35 signals on Nimitz Highway, we put in adaptive signal technology, the two systems that can sum, um, transmit signal phase and timing information to drivers, uh, driverless vehicles, and we wanted to make sure that we could cover everybody. So I don't want to just send it to driverless vehicles because not everybody has them, but everybody has a cell phone. So we're, submitting, uh, we're sending out uh, through cellular technology the signal phase and timing information to anybody who has a cell phone who downloads the app. When can people start using it? They can use it immediately. So if you have a driverless vehicle, we have short um, a DSRC technology that sends information from the signals to your car to let you know the timing of the, the signals throughout the corridor, throughout those 35 signals. So you can know when the car will know when the, the lights turn red, when they turn green. Um, through the, our, our um, cellular platform, if you download the Travel Safely app on your on your phone, you can you can um, get the information coming from those signals to your cell phone. Of course, everybody should be hands free. It should be on your dash. It should be on your on your seat. It'll tell you all the information you need uh, for that corridor as well. So when you come up to a red light, it'll be telling you that the, the signal phase is red. It'll tell you the time frame that that signal phase will turn green for each turning movement. And when it turns green, it'll let you know. The coolest thing about it is it's trying, I'm, we're trying to connect not only the cars or the people to the signals, we're also trying to connect them to each other. So with that, if everybody on that route has the application on, downloaded it on, that app can tell you if you're approaching somebody else. So if, a, say for instance, a pedestrian has the application on, when they're walking, if there's a car that's approaching them from behind at more than 20 miles per hour over what the speed that they're going, the application will tell them, high-speed high, high vehicle approaching from the rear. If you're the driver and the pedestrians out there, it'll tell you approaching pedestrian on your right or front right. So it's just trying to connect everybody together now, getting, in, getting ready for that driverless technology or connected technology that's coming in the future. So have you been in a driverless car? Yes, uh, when, when I was in California during the testing. And so what was that like? It was, it's, unner it's a little unnerving. Um, knowing that you're in the back seat, you have no control over the vehicle, um, nobody else is in, in front there, it, it's a little uncomfortable. But you get used to it pretty quickly. I mean, we've, we're all in driverless technology nowadays. I mean, the, the small um, idea of it is the elevator. Especially now when people are putting those controls on the outside of the elevator, you press it, you jump, and you get no control on the inside. Uh, you're but right. the bigger discussion is um, airplanes. Airplanes have been driving themselves for a while now. Pilots are there, definitely, to take control if necessary. But that technology has been, been in existence for a long time. So, yeah, it's this trust factor. But I guess if you look at it that way, that it's in use and in place now, and it has been for years. Exactly. 
the thing is, the, the push towards this driver's te driverless technology, there's going to be um, significant disruptors in the system. How we commute every day, if we own our own vehicles, um, how we use the services will change with this technology as it's coming through. But the biggest thing for me is um, the safety factor in all of this. Every year on our Hawaii roadways, we have 110 fatalities. Mostly, I mean, if you look at the, the numbers, 95% of those fatalities come from um, distracted driving, excessive speeding, and uh, drunk or drug driving, 95%. So if those human, human errors or human choices were taken out of the mix, 100 people go home every year. And we're hoping that this technology, this connected autonomous vehicle technology, not only makes things more efficient for our society, but make it much, much safer. The computer system can't get drunk. Um, it'll be programmed for a certain speed, and it'll know the road, oh, rules of the road, and it'll be paying attention. That's the intent um, that we're pushing forward on. The test project then that was run. We already uh, um, installed all of the equipment in Mar by March. It was supposed to be done by June, but because COVID hit, uh, we were able to accelerate the construction with the lighter than normal traffic that was out there. The last thing I want to do is delay work and when there's nobody using the roads. And I don't want to impact people when they come back. So we accelerated the work. We got it done. We're, now we're monitoring the system to try and see how we best work it. Several exciting things about the technology that we've put in. First was just the adapted signal technology. At this time, when we have a corridor like Nimitz, very busy, we have about 50,000 vehicles that run through that corridor every day. We have a lot of bicycles and pedestrians and a lot of conflicts throughout that route with our freight that's coming from the harbor. So we thought that was a perfect area for us to test this out. When we started looking at the system, we had about 40% green time. So when you, if you're driving your vehicle along that route, you can expect to hit a green light 40% of the time. Our target was to ensure that when you use that route, you can expect to hit the green 60% of the time. So this, um, if we had done that manually, it would take studies, multiple studies, throughout that quarter to time the, uh, the signals, and us going out there manually to adjust the signals and then test it again. Three or four iterations. That would have taken about six months. With adaptive signal technology, it's taking information from all the sensors that come in through that, that intersection and giving us real-time algorithms, real-time um, adjustment recommendations to say, this is the need of the system now. This is what it was last year because we programmed it. This is what it was yesterday. This is what we see now. And the signal can change immediately. It can adjust to the timing and, and the needs of the public immediately. So we put that throughout the 35 signals throughout the quarter to test it. And definitely first, the data that comes in. And then second, how quickly we can adjust to the needs of the public. It's working really, really well. So tell us the parameters of that corridor. Where does it start and where does it end? This one, we started off at Van Island Access Road, and we took it out to Kalia, Kalia Road. So it runs through that whole corridor. Pretty much mirrors the area that we put in our resurfacing project because we wanted to make sure we adjusted the corridor and not just pieces of it. So what's your sense? I mean, do we have any idea as to how many people have these vehicles that have this technology to use? We don't, so I'm getting the counts now. We're trying to get the counts through through our DMV to make sure we understand it. But that's why I didn't want to count on just having people who have the vehicles benefit from this. I wanted to make sure everybody could use it. So that's why we put in the cellular platform to allow anybody with a cell phone to get the signal phase and timing information and the connectivity with everybody else through that corridor. So I hope that everybody on Oahu downloads it because we're going to be updating our system based on this study to change out all of our state signals to adapt this signal technology and um, transmitting um, through DSRC and the cellular platform this signal phase and timing information so everybody throughout the island on any state route can utilize this information. Does the state then have these driverless cars, the vehicles here? I mean, when are you going to jump in one and try it on Nimitz? <laughs> we, we don't yet, but the push is to make sure that we work with U8 to get them down here so we can start running a real robust testing program. Do you think we'll get it before the end of the year, beginning of next year? It's, um, it's middle of next year that we're targeting uh, to get the driverless vehicle for the state. Um, but for us, the real win would be for manufacturers to see Hawaii as, as uh, the right place to come down and test out their technologies. Um, we'd love to use this as a springboard and a platform to um, increase our, our um, economy, get more people interested in, in running um, their, their testing in Hawaii and hiring more of our people here um, to get them up.
love to push the technologies here and get Hawaii into the market very quickly. But the whole idea is you've got this uh, information that's now available uh, through an app. You can look at it on your cell phone, get, get used to it, kind of get our feet wet. Yeah. Exactly. So whether you have a, a, a connected vehicle or not, autonomous vehicle or not, you can get benefit from the information right now. And you're also doing a project there on the Big Island. Well, we actually, we're doing it on, on all islands. So Maui, we've, we've already changed out all signals on the state system, so adaptive signal technology. Uh, we're installing now that cellular access information or that cellular platform to make sure we can send out that information to people. Big Island, we're doing the same thing. Kauai, there's only 33 signals out there, so we're updating it slowly and making sure that everything is done by the end of or by the end of 2022. Our whole state system will be connected. Okay, I think Lanai, don't they just have one stoplight? <laughs> that one's, we're not, we're not going to be connecting at this time. <laughs> okay, all right. For us, when we start pushing forward on these platforms, it's it's not just to get or or to make sure that we take care of people who have connected autonomous vehicles. We want to make sure we take care of everybody. We're trying to provide more information now. From the time you start, um, before you get in your car uh, through applications, so you can you can see what your route's going to look like. <laughs> From the time you get in it, um, so you can see the timing that you need on your route, uh, the timing you need at your signals, and then hopefully we can connect you to your destination. And we're trying to make sure that we use this use technology to make everyone's drives and routes more dependable. We know that we cannot build ourselves out of congestion in Hawaii, so we're trying to make sure we can use the technologies available now to make things at least more dependable, at least a little bit easier for everyone. This technology is going to be tremendous in doing so. In the end, when everybody converts to autonomous vehicles, and, and we know that it's coming, we know that eventually we'll get there, but we're going to be in a period where we have some autonomous vehicles on the system and some normal, regular, non-controlled vehicles on the system. So we want to make sure we prepare for everyone to have this information as they go through the route. Information is power. Absolutely, absolutely. And we're really excited about it. You know, really, when we start looking at the capacity um, increases that we're getting on Nimitz because of the 60% green time, I mean, if we had to widen Nimitz another lane, it would take about $350 million just in that small route. And we know we're, we can... We can get that increase in capacity just through technology, just through adaptive signals. So we're trying to make sure we maximize that throughout our system. We cannot take any more land out there. We cannot take any more time to construct. It'll be interesting to see what happens when rail goes down that route. Yes, yes, exactly. <laughs> and that'll be that'll just add that, that new you know, venue for everybody to, to get around. It'll be really interesting how we connect everything up. Yeah, but you know, God knows when that's going to happen, though, right? Yikes. <laughs> <laughs> Well, that was a conversation that we had with State Highways Administrator Ed Sniffen about driverless car technology that is being put in place now throughout the state. For links about the program and info about the app, head to our website, hawaiipublicradio.org. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from First Insurance Company of Hawaii, providing auto insurance since 1911, committed to delivering personal attention and expert advice. First Insurance Company of Hawaii, FICOH.com. Honolulu Civil Beach Reality Check segment today looks at something called glamping. It's fancy camping, roughing it, but not really. Aaron Parakini has a story on a controversy that is brewing on the Garden Isle. Good morning. Hi, Catherine. You know, this glamping thing, I mean, my perception of it is uh, someone comes and puts up a fancy tent and serves you fine food, but your story is a little different. It's very different. It's about a, uh, a resort that would follow... Uh, a luxury trend that's happening all over the country in which uh, gl glamorous camping, so-called glamping, uh, is becoming a very high-end kind of uh, hotel activity. And in this case, the, the new owners of the former Princeville Resort, which are redeveloping it as a, a health food, high-end health food, a health, health spa, not health food, uh, 
have taken or want to take three holes of a nine-hole golf course in Princeville and convert it into a glamping resort, uh, which would have a permanent or semi-permanent canvas and wood structures with full baths uh, on the former golf course holes, right uh, butting up onto the property of people who now think they're living next to a golf course. So it's caused quite a community stir uh, <clears throat> that is really has significance uh, countywide and, and, and statewide in the sense that there are many communities uh, on our island and throughout Hawaii where people may have purchased property thinking that it was a, a golf course community, only to find out that the developers uh, are empowered to develop it anyway, and that the, the so-called, or what people thought was, the perpetual uh, open space isn't. And that's a, a, an ugly realization to which uh, hundreds of people who live in Princeville now woke up a few months ago. And you were tracking a meeting that happened this weekend, right, where they talked about this? There was a residence meeting that was uh, supposedly closed and private, uh, at which some very spirited opinions were expressed. Uh, but it's clear that the community has sort of split. Uh, one faction uh, wants to uh, oppose and fight uh, this development at all costs uh, uh, indefinitely. Uh, but the uh, president of the Homeowners Association, who is himself a lawyer, uh, says that that would probably be fruitless uh, long term and that ultimately the developer uh, has uh, deeper pockets than the community does. So and the that really has people upset. It's, it's, uh, the community is sort of looking at a situation where uh, this whole concept of the community in which they were living uh, could be turned on its head uh, at a point in 2026 when a very obscure covenant that uh, until that date safeguards the open space uh, nature of the golf course, that expires. Well, talk and about that because, you know, the developer is Starwood. Starwood. And, and uh, they're saying, what, there's a threat of building... You know, additional homes in that. They, area? They, well, it's it's an interesting, one might say, extortion uh, strategy. Uh, they want to start the glamping resort. They want to start construction of that next year. They want to apply for permits in January. Uh, but if they're prevented from doing that, uh, then what they're saying is that they will uh, exercise their development rights starting in 2026 to build hundreds of single-family homes on what, are, what is now a total of 27 holes of golf courses. And they, they hold a lot of the cards. It's also, there's some speculation that uh, Starwood has a reputation in some quarters as flipping properties, and they've already said that they might sell part or all of this property uh, if this controversy isn't resolved in their favor. Uh, but at the moment, there's, there's a... Uh, a great <clears throat> threat level from the developer and a great fear level and anger level in the community. So there's some thought that, okay, this is a lesser of those two evils. Yes, yeah. Uh, and But the, the people who have very strong feelings about glamping, and uh, this is, we're talking about something that would be $500 a night and up. Uh, so this is not just pitching a tent uh, out by a tree. Uh, this is essentially a full-service resort in which the, the same room service and what have you, housekeeping uh, uh, capabilities that would, would be available in the hotel will be available on the glamping site. Uh, there are noise issues. There are uh, privacy issues, uh, things that, that people have brought up that uh, would alarm almost anyone if if this was proposed to be in your backyard, and I guess that's we're back to the NIMBY, right. uh, the NIMBY approach here because cause in some cases, literally, of current Princeville residents, this would be in their backyards. Okay, well, something to track uh, in the new year. Thanks so much, Alan. Thank you. That was Alan Parakini with today's reality check. Head to civilbeat.org to read his story.
on this week's On the Media, how the quintessentially English William Shakespeare became America's writer. It is explosive. It is potentially toxic. But that's why it speaks to us. We get it. From racism to immigration to sexual politics and beyond on this week's On the Media. Beginning this evening at 7, following The Body Show. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from First Insurance Company of Hawaii, providers of auto, home, commercial, and specialty lines of insurance since 1911. First Insurance Company of Hawaii, FICOH.com. After last week's update with Executive Director Denise Seri Matsubara of the Hawaii Housing Finance and Development Corporation, uh, you know, we were talking about the delays with the program to help families with rent and mortgage payments. We heard this on our talkback line, starting with Eduardo from Oahu. I was a little disappointed that once again we heard the director of HHFDC sort of blame applicants for the problems without it taking any responsibility at their own organization for the poor management of the program that they did not anticipate in a state with the highest rate of homelessness and the highest cost for housing in the nation that their systems could not keep up with the demand for this program and that it may not get dispersed and that there's been no accounting for the expenses, the administrative expenses, the marketing expenses, none of that was discussed. It's really disappointing. I wish it could have been a more hard-pressing interview to really get some answers. Perhaps she can have her back again with a live segment where real people can ask her questions. Thank you so much for your program and all you do, and happy Thanksgiving. Hi, my name's Lucy Enoy, and we do property management. I was responding to the conversation with the Hawaii Housing Aloha Charities and Aloha United Way and Catholic Charities regarding why so many landlords are not responding. I think part of the problem, as we have received quite a few of these, is that each one comes from a different email. It's not necessarily clear that it's Aloha United Way or Catholic Charities. It can be, for example, Gregory House or there are some others as well. And each of these invitations to provide information um, is completely different. Some say, how far in arrears are your tenants? Which months are you claiming for? And um, some of, a couple of them were not really professional looking. I thought they were a phishing scam. And it took me a while to get a hold of someone at Aloha United Way and find out that that was, in fact, for one of our tenants. And um, you know, in this day and age, it's it's a lot to ask somebody to send a W-9 with all their, you know, tax information on it if you're not clear that who they are. I think if they had all come up with one application that was the same for every tenant, because um, as it is, it takes me about 45 minutes to do each one, and we've had probably 10 or 15 tenants request these. I'm happy to do it. I'm happy to get the money, but it just is it's time-consuming, and I'm never quite sure if it's actually a real request. So I just wanted to give that feedback to the organizations providing this money. Thanks. Bye. And the Hawaii Housing and Finance Development Corporation acknowledged callers from the nonprofit groups do ask for a tax or a federal ID number, assuming they have a general excise tax license, and in absence of that, do ask for social security numbers. As for changes to the management of the program, HHFDC sent out letters last week notifying landlords of the various vendors who might be calling. They also sent out more detailed information about what has to be submitted before a check can be cut. Thanks for the feedback, everybody. Email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. Reach out to us via social media on Facebook or Twitter or call our talkback line 792-8217.
In today's Backyard Quiz, we take a look at the story of a Hawaiian princess whose abduction from one island to another bears a slight similarity to the ancient tale of Helen of Troy. The story goes that Lolale, a chief of Oahu, tasked his cousin to search the whole of the Hawaiian Islands for a suitable bride. The cousin, uh, Kalamakua, boldly accepted the task, and when he found a beautiful young woman swimming the breaks off the coast of Hana, he resolved to bring her back to his royal retainer. Before he could bring her back, though, they found themselves caught in a series of harsh waves that he expertly navigates before paddling back to Oahu. When Kalamakua brought the woman back to his cousin, the two were wed, although the marriage was not to last. As it turned out, the woman had fallen in love with Kalamakua instead. The chief consented to a divorce, and the woman married uh, Kalamakua. The woman's name was Kalea, and although this royal rendezvous did not result in a 10-year war, historians have likened her case to the ancient story of Helen of Troy. And we stumped you on that question. That is today's quiz, and if you have an idea for one, please send it to talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Scheidler College of Business at UH Manoa, offering the global MBA with 21-month, 24-month, and 36-month options. Scheidler.hawaii.edu. Are you service-minded? HPR is looking for a full-time membership coordinator to give our station members and volunteers the care and support they deserve. If you love public radio and are ready to join our lively and highly interactive workplace, learn more on the Employment Opportunities page at hawaiipublicradio.org. Today is the last day to apply, so act now before the window closes. Healthy reefs need help from healthy fish and other marine life. That's why the state's Aquatic Resources Division is reaching out to fisher people and ocean users, casting a wide net to get information about herbivores, those marine creatures that we interact with when we get out into the sea. Stasia Marco is with the Department of Land and Natural Resources. She shares with us what you need to know about a series of scoping meetings that just launched and runs through December 10th. We're looking into options for statewide management and statewide regulations for herbivores, including sea urchins, chubs, or nanui, surgeon fishes, and uhu, or parrotfish. And so we're looking for public input on what type of management actions the public may support um, in our efforts. And our goal for herbivore management is to enhance reef resilience. Okay, so you just want to know, you know, how do people interact with these species? We're interested in um, knowing how people think that these species are doing. Uh, we'd like to let people know about the importance of these species in particular to keeping our reefs healthy, ex especially in the face of global climate change, warming oceans. It's really important to keep our reefs as healthy as possible. And these herbivores, these groups of herbivores are particularly essential in making that happen. And so what we're looking for is feedback is um, that we do plan on putting in place some statewide management regulations. And so one of the keys to any regulation is um, compliance and we can, and support. And so what we're looking for is public feedback to enhance compliance and support to these rules. This past year was a bit of a reprieve from years past overall, but um, it's projected that bleaching events and warming ocean events will occur more frequently and be more intense over time. And so Though those are large global scale issues, um, the best way to protect our reefs is to keep them as healthy as possible in the interim. So healthy herbivores mean healthy reefs, and actually it means better fishing for everyone because there'll be more herbivores on the reef. Now, for urchins, uh, I know here on Oahu, uh, we have heard about how urchins have been dispatched in Kaneohe Bay to help uh, with the invasive uh, seaweed. Yes, that's absolutely true. So in Kaneohe Bay, urchins have been tremendously helpful in combating invasive seaweed. And urchins can clear down algae and make sure there's plenty of space on the reef for new corals to recruit. And also for um, crustless coralline algae, which is basically a foundational part of coral. It gives the surface for coral to recruit and grow. And so you want to know, you know what the situation is with urchins on, on the various islands? We monitoring data from the Division of Aquatic Resources on urchins throughout the various islands. So we have 
a general idea of how they're doing. Um, but regardless of how they're doing, we want to ensure that their populations are healthy and abundant for the future. So what we're really looking for is how do people see the collecting of urchins and what do they think would be reasonable as far as um, supporting a regulation that would be a more sustainable practice. So what we're not really looking for is uh, no take or uh, no collecting of something like urchins, but more so of what's the best way to manage them so that people can continue to harvest these species and continue to eat them. As we know, a lot of people rely on the ocean for their food, but how can we do it in a way that's sustainable so that they're, they're around for a long time in the future and they're able to fulfill their role and function on the reef? We had a situation recently uh, with sea slugs, I think, where the authorities had to step in because people were harvesting these sea slugs because they they uh, were exporting them because they, they could make lots of money. But, you know, removing one species like that, um, you know, could have a, an effect on the ecosystems out there. That's true. That was a case with sea cucumbers. And so they implemented some adaptive management to restrict the harvest of sea cucumbers during that time to try to limit their export. And here we're looking at these four key groups to try to enhance herbivores overall in the reef. Now, with uhu, the parrotfish, I mean, th that's a very popular and delicious fish to eat. <laughs> so what are you looking uh, for, for that species? So at this stage, we are at the very first stage of the process. So we don't have anything specific in mind. And as far as regulations go, we're really looking to hear from the public on what types of things they would support. Now, things that typically have been done in the past to help support species like herbivores are things like bag limits, which means you, um, each fisher is limited to a certain number that can be taken at each time that they go fishing. Um, so again, fishing still allowed, but it's just limited in such a way to be more sustainable. Another thing that's considered are size limits. So we do have a size limit for some species of uhu throughout the state of Hawaii, and Maui actually has a slightly different size limit, a, a little bit more strict uh, limitation than Maui, and they've shown some really nice results with um, growth of uhu there. Yeah, that's at the Kahikili Fisheries Management Area? Well, at Kahikili, they're actually not allowed to um, fish herbivores there. They're still allowed to do fishing, um, but herbivores can't be fished there at all. Um, but beyond that, so for example, the size limit for um, uhu throughout the state, uh, minimum size is 12 inches, which means that the fish have to be at least 12 inches before a fisher can legally take them. Um, but on Maui, for example, it's set at 10 inches. And then they have some additional um, rules for specific species. Well, what about the surgeon fish? Um, so at Kahakili, uh, they're not allowed to take surgeon. Um, surgeon fish cannot be fished either. And then there are a few species that have specific rules, including kala and manini statewide. Okay, but the idea then, if there are these uh, herbivores that are in this no-take area, you know, there is that spillover, right? So uh, there, there may be more fish outside that area. Absolutely right. So at Kahakili, they've had... Um, really large in, um, increases in their parrotfish biomass and in their surgeonfish biomass. So it actually, um, since 2016, when the Kahikili Fishery Management Area was instated, parrotfish biomass increased by 331% and surgeonfish biomass increased by 71%. And the idea is absolutely right. When there's more fish within the area, then they're going to spread out and spill over into the adjacent areas to provide more fish outside of the boundaries. But for the statewide rules, we're looking at something very different. The Kahakili example is place-based. So there's specific rules in a very small area relative to all of Maui. But what we're looking for here are a slightly less stringent. So for example, in, in Kahakili, there's no fishing for herbivores, including urchins, chubs, surgeonfish and uhu within that area. But for statewide rules, because it would be applicable to all nearshore waters, we're looking at rules that aren't quite so strict that still allow fishing. And so the input we're really hoping to gather are what type of tools DART um, uses within our toolbox of regulations 
would be um, have the most support and compliance while still protecting those groups of species. Okay, so you're casting a wide net and trying to get that input yes. from the fisher people. Absolutely. Okay, all right. Anything else that you think uh, would be important to underscore? I mean, this is really the start, right, of your process. I think that's the most important thing to underscore. So this is the first step. We want input early. We want to um, to gather as much feedback as possible so that when we're considering what the options are for rules and regulations, uh, we have public input. And then we'll go back to the drawing board, draft some ideas based on the input that we've heard, and we plan on going back out to communities at the end of February and early March to um, share our proposals. And then again, scope that proposal with the public to see what people think with what we've come up with. But again, what we've come up with is not only using the best readily available science, but also the input from these initial scoping sessions. That was Dacia Marco with DLNR's Aquatic Resources Division. Maui has just completed its meetings, but tomorrow there's a meeting on Kauai and Oahu and Big Island will be later this week and next. We'll have links posted on our website. That is it for today. Tomorrow, we'll get reaction to the sentencing of Police Chief Louis K. Aloha and his wife, Catherine. Uh, what do you think about this long-running public corruption scandal? Call our talkback line, 808-792-8217. You can tweet us at HI Conversation or head to our Facebook page. And remember that all of our shows are archived. Find them on the conversation page at hawaiipublicradio.org. I'm Catherine Cruz. We will be back tomorrow with more of the conversation.